Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning, everyone. So we're going to continue our discussion of the uh, mitzvah of bitachon. And this class has been sponsored by Ruth Warner in memory of her father, Yechiel Michal ben Yehoshua. May his neshama have an aliyah. Thank you to everybody for coming on and continuing to learn with me. I really appreciate it. I realize that, you know, even if only one person came on, I'd still be doing this because I have to do this. This is just, uh, you know, part of breathing and eating for me to be able to uh, to teach and to uh, impart all of this incredible Torah wisdom and inspiration for, for living. So we've been talking about Bitachon, and um, I want to continue with what we were speaking about last week. But before we do that, I want to just um, <clears throat> sort of come back to the basics of Bitachon again, and what is Bitachon. So we said right at the very beginning of this series, and by the way, you can access the series on my podcast called Accessing Your Best Self. It's on all of the podcast stations. So they're all there. And we know that our basic definition of bitachon is that it's basically emuna put into practice, right? Emuna, which means belief, knowing that there's a God, believing there's a God, is one area which is a little bit theoretical and abstract, right? Many, many people believe in God. They believe in God, even that is a muscle in terms of how deep and strong your belief is based on your, as the Rambam says, your knowledge of Hashem, looking around the world, learning biology, learning about the complexity of the world and life, and getting an appreciation for the fact that there's a creator. However, that knowledge can remain uh, completely in the head, completely cerebral and intellectual. In order to really live with God, a person has to transform that emuna into bitachon. And as we said, the Rambam, Maimonides says that emuna is like the tree, but bitachon is the tree that bears fruit. And therefore, again, a person can have emuna with absolutely no bitachon. In other words, it's very theoretical. I believe in God. I know there's a creator. It makes sense to me intellectually that, you know, this couldn't have just happened randomly any more than the Mona Lisa happened randomly, right? Or Shakespeare's great works of uh, literature happened randomly, some ink spilled on the page. So intellectually, a person can come to belief in God. But again, taking that belief into everyday life is moving from the mind to the heart, to the emotions, to the responses, which as the Kotzke Rebbe said, is like going from, you know, it's like, Traversing the distance between heaven and earth, the distance between the mind, what we know, and how we actually respond and act. You know, we know the psychological term cognitive dissonance, that you can know something intellectually, and yet you can do things that are completely opposite and antithetical to what you know. And this is the human condition. And that's why Bitafon is a lifelong uh, work, a lifelong path that unless a person pays attention and sincerely wants to acquire it, it doesn't just happen. Um, one of the ideas that Rabbi Victor Miller speaks about in his book, Emun and Bitachon, is the idea that um, being about Bitachon, being somebody who is a master of Bitachon or trusting in Hashem, has to do with realizing that Hashem is always watching that Hashem is always looking at us. I remember once when my son was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight, we were getting ready for school one morning and, you know, he's eating breakfast and all of a sudden he says, I feel like my Rebbe's looking at me. You know, I'm like, what? He said, I feel like my Rebbe's watching me. So, you know, that was like as close as he could get to the idea of God 
but you know that sensitivity that sensibility that you know i'm being watched that i have to be careful what i do what i say you know uh, you know how i act and yeah harriet did you want to say i just wanted to add a very cute quick story sure, when my son my son went to Nair Israel. It was his first year in Nair Israel Yeshiva in Toronto. Yeah. And um, they were giving out pizza. And they said, I think they said, you can only have two slices. And my son was standing there. He was watching. And the boys were grabbing like three slices and four, whatever. Yeah. And he just looked. And he, and he, and he, I thought to himself, he came home and he told us, he says, but they don't understand. Hashem is watching. Exactly. Well, that's it. So there's a famous story about the Vilna Gaon, that he was once riding in a coach. I heard this in, in the name of the Chafetz Chaim too, but this seems to happen a lot. He was riding in a coach when the wagon driver stopped by the roadside and allowed his horse to feed on somebody else's grain. The Gaon raised his voice and shouted, somebody's watching, somebody's watching, quick. The wagon driver quickly whipped his horse and made his getaway. Some way down the road, he turned and said to the Gaon, who was looking? And the Gaon replied, Hashem was looking, he said. Phew, said the wagon driver. I thought it was the farmer. So what Rabbi Avigdor Miller says basically is that we have to labor very hard to gain the awareness that Hashem is actually as present as the farmer. And that's a big achievement. It's one of the biggest achievements in life. If you work on it all your life, by the time you're old and gray and ready to leave this world, you might have acquired a little bit of this awareness. Then you can feel that you've been successful in life. So, you know, the idea that somebody's watching. My husband told me recently that I think the Chafetz Chaim said that he would only travel in a, in a wagon with a Gentile who wore a cross around his neck because he felt that a believing Christian, that that was a level in terms of having a certain fear of heaven, that somebody who was not religious at all didn't, doesn't necessarily have. But the idea is that to acquire this attitude that Hashem is looking and uh, not only watching what we do, but knows every thought that we think, right? And this is part of developing ourselves in this area of bitachon. Now, what we were talking about last week is a, a German idea. I think I got the, trans, uh, the uh, uh, pronunciation right. Schaudenfreude. Freude. Freude. Okay? Which is a German word which actually means being happy when other people fail. Right? Being happy for another person's downfall. And we said that this isn't such a foreign concept because... Um, you know, we basically grow up in a society that is based on negative interdependence. And the idea there is it's based on competition. It's based on uh, the idea that, you know, only one of us can succeed. Yeah. And it's only if you fail right. that I succeed. Patty, yeah. very sweetly, Patty Fluxgold, I see you just came on. Nice. She sent me... Um, Actually, she said it reminded her of a Broadway play. I can't remember the name of it, Patty. You remember, what's the name of it? Avenue Q. Avenue Q. Okay, I never saw it, and probably I shouldn't see it. But, right. But, <laughs> and I, I edited this a little bit, but there actually is a song in that show all about this concept of Schadenfreude. Yeah. And, and anyway, I'm going to just sort of tell you a little bit about it, because it's, it's uh, so relevant. So he says, um, it's a conversation between two people. And I'm just going to say a little bit of it. So basically, one of them says, when I see how sad you are, it sort of makes me happy. Happy? Sorry, Nikki, human nature, nothing I can do. It's schadenfreude, making me feel glad that I'm not you. Well, that's not very nice, Gary. I didn't say it was nice, but everybody does it. Did you ever clap when a waitress falls and drops a tray of glasses? Yeah. Okay, etc. And don't, don't you feel all warm and cozy watching people out in the rain? You bet. Well, that's schadenfreude. People taking pleasure in your pain. 
Oh, Schadenfreude, huh? What's that? Some kind of Nazi word? <laughs> yep, it's German for happiness at the misfortune of otherness. Anyways, it goes on and on about all these things. And um, the world needs people like you and me who've been knocked around by fate. Because when people see us, they don't want to be us. And that makes them feel great. <laughs> you and me, Schadenfreude, making the world a better place making the world a better place to be, okay. Anyway, obviously this is not a Jewish concept, right? We talked about the Jewish concept being positive interdependence. The idea that your success is my success, that I don't need you to fail in order to be and feel successful. And of course, this feeling of schadenfreude is based on all kinds of things that are the antithesis of bitachon and Hashem. It's based on jealousy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So Jewish people, the proper way of feeling is positive interdependence, that when you succeed, I succeed. We say this pasuk, kol Yisrael revim zebazah, that every Jewish person and the truth is, is people in general, that we're all interconnected. And we know that with the pandemic, we found that out very clearly that everyone is interconnected, that everything affects everybody. And so the proper attitude is that my, your happiness is part of my happiness, that it makes me feel a bit better because your success is not taking anything away from me. And this is where Bitachon comes in. That there's no place for jealousy because I am going to get exactly what I am supposed to get. And there's no such thing as I'm sitting in front of my pizza pie and you can come along and take away my job, my shidduch, my money that's coming to me, my best friend. There's no such thing as that because I have this pie and it belongs to me. And you have your own pie. And so even though we think that this can happen, the reality is that it's an illusion because according to the idea of bitachon, is Hashem, Hashem says, nobody can take away anything that is coming to you. Okay, this is part of the basis and foundation of, of bitachon. Okay, so jealousy is based on an illusion because nobody can take away what was not coming to you. And what I wanted to talk about to continue is that this is also true. I was saying that we're all tested in the area that matters the most to us, right? If you're a great pianist or you know, you're an academic who writes papers, we're threatened by the people who are in our profession, who do the same things that we do that's important to us. So if we look into our own lives, we will find those areas where we feel threatened by other people's success. And again, it's usually in an area that's closest to us and to our feelings of, you know, self-esteem and success. Um, and, and this kind of jealousy can go on even in terms of spiritual matters. So we have this concept called Kinat Sofri, the jealousy of scholars for one another. And we know that, you know, back in Tisha B'Av, we talk a lot about the idea that the temples were destroyed. Well, the second temple in specific was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam, causeless hatred. But there is a idea there that it was caused by Tsarat Ayin, by an Ayin Ra. In other words, all of these scholars who were all great Torah scholars, they had a certain Shmek, you know, a certain Shmek, which was on their level, considered so distasteful, a feeling that because you know as much Torah as I do, I'm not quite as, I don't feel as good about myself anymore. Right? I, I feel lowered because, and so there was an I and Ra, a certain begrudging. And so this can happen too, as much as we say, on the one hand, Kinat Sofrim is positive, meaning when you know somebody who's growing spiritually and, you know, does more chesed than you and davens better than you and has more direction and kavana, 
when they're davening and you look at them with a certain jealousy, a good jealousy, right? Because there's a place, the greatness of Judaism is that all of the mito that we have as human beings, they can be channeled and directed towards good. Okay. You know, uh, anger, right? Rav Noah Weinberg used to say, give me 10 angry men and I'll change the world. So even a, 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 a um, meat as destructive as anger or jealousy can be turned towards good. And so this idea that, you know, being jealous of somebody who's greater than you spiritually, and that causes you to want to be greater, that's taking your natural human jealousy and turning it in the right direction. However, again, this can deteriorate very easily. When a person starts begrudging and hating that person who, you know, maybe does more mitzvot, maybe learns more Torah. And we have to be very careful because sometimes we can be very self-righteous about, you know, what other people are doing. And if we cue into our own feelings of inadequacy or perhaps how their success makes me feel less, um, we might discover that, you know, it's not coming from such a righteous place always. And there could be a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of disillusionment with our own levels. Because when you're really growing and you're busy with your own spiritual work, you're not too preoccupied with other people's. And, you know, one way of growing is to put everybody else down. And that makes us feel like we're developing spiritually. And we have to be careful because, you know, there's two ways to grow, as they say. You can either dig a hole for the other person, so now you're much, much taller. Or you can do the hard work of actually getting on a chair and growing, so to speak. And that way you really are taller. And as I said before, this idea that I found very early in life that just... Uh, clicks with me, you know, there is no nobility in being superior to another person. True nobility comes in being superior to your previous self. And, you know, there's so much of our own Yetzirah that we've talked about that wants to um, prevent us from spiritual growth because that's the Yetzirah's job. Doesn't want Jews to be Jewish. He doesn't want Jews to take Torah and mitzvot seriously. That is his job. And so one of the easiest ways to do it is through developing our egos in a way that prevents us from growing. You know, I'm okay, you're not okay. And finding people who are less than us so that we can feel that we've grown and of course, when we find people who are more than us and we start feeling this discomfort or this feeling of needing to pull them down, you know, we have to be careful. It, it, it's a known thing that there is, I think it's in the Gemara. I know Rabbi Akiva, before he made his transformation, you know, it talks about how much he hated Talmidei Chachamim. He hated Torah scholars. It describes it in the Gemara that he wanted to bite them whenever he would see somebody who was a Torah scholar. And the truth is, is you don't need to be Rabbi Akiva and be that great to have that kind of inclination. Um, it's, it's a known thing that regular Jews have a Yetzirah to be bothered by, let's say, Jews who have dedicated their lives to sitting and learning Torah. You know, get a job, da, 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 da. we do that. Because that's what makes sense. And that's like, you know, one plus one equals two. But we Jews, we, we don't live with just what our eyes see and what makes sense physically and materially. We, we see the world in a much deeper way. Where the spiritual and the physical are completely, you know, um, much, much more than what we just see with our physical eyes. So sometimes it's because we don't have the spiritual glasses we're not wearing the proper glasses to see things. So we have to be careful. Okay, enough about that. So again, there's this idea, Ain Adam nobody can take away what belongs to me. Again, this is the most important principle when it comes to understanding Bitachon. 
that whatever is coming to me is going to come to me, that nobody can hurt me or benefit me unless Hashem allows it to be. And I, you know, I just want to go back to, to the source of where a lot about Bitachon is written and just give you the basic principles there. Um, from the book Chovot HaLevavo that was written thousands of years ago, I see Cecilia Shore is on the on the call. Which hi, Cecile. Hi. Hi. I have to tell her that her son Ephraim, many many moons ago, he actually sent me this two volume set of this archaic thousands years old book, um, you know, full of thou arts and all kinds of things, hoping that I'd read it and transform into a religious Jew. And you know, I got this two volume set in the mail, and I opened it up and went. Oh my goodness, I don't know how I this isn't going to do it, you know. Uh, but it took many years, and now I, you know, I actually read it and, and go back to it. So, this is it written in, in our vernacular, and it's just again the conditions of bitachon. It's reminding us why we should have bitachon. You know, I was thinking for those of you who say to Hillam or you've ever opened up the book of Psalms. I don't know how many times David HaMelech, King David, refers to the concept of bitachon. You know, bitach Hashem, ba'asei tov. So many psukim that go back to this idea of trusting in God. And of course, David HaMelech, King David, was our role model, not only for somebody who was one of the most powerful people in the world, but who at the same time had tremendous humility and incredible challenges in his life. You know, not only did he have so many enemies from without, he dealt with the enemies within him. And even from his own family, he had children who, a child, a son who wanted to kill him, who was after him his whole life. And David Amelech goes back and back over and over again to the concept of bitachon, that I believe in you, Hashem, that I trust in you, that you're going to save me, that you're going to take care of me, that no matter what happens around me, no matter how many enemies are coming at me, I trust that you will rescue me and save me. And the concept there, again, the principle there is that idea that I've mentioned before, the idea that the more we trust in Hashem, the more we give Hashem the ability to do for us, that we're actually in the driver's seat. God says, you trust me this much? Okay, thank you very much. I can do this much for you. You trust me a little bit more? Great, you opened up more of a space for me to be able to help you. So, so much of it is dependent on our trust. And of course, David Amalek was the paradigm of somebody who completely surrendered and said, you know what, Hashem, I am weak. I cannot do this alone. I need your help. Now, why would we put our trust in Hashem? This is what the Chovod HaLavavot asks. Why put your trust in Hashem? And he gives seven reasons for why it makes sense logically. If you believe in a creator, number one, right? That has to be there first. So why put your trust in him? Just leave it in the cerebral level. So the first one is in brief, and this is in brief, seven conditions of bitachon of why we should trust in Hashem. Number one, he loves us. No human being can love us like he does. Not our parents, not our grandparents, not our siblings. Nobody can love us the way he does. Number two, he keeps us in mind. He never forgets about us. He is constantly aware of all of our needs, desires, and struggles. Number three, he carries out what he wants. In other words, he has the ability to carry out whatever it is that he wants. There is nothing that prevents Hashem. Other people can want to do something for you. They can have great intentions. They can love you. They can even think about you a lot. But they're not always able to deliver. Right? That's why we say in Tehillim, don't put your trust in nobles, in your contacts, in your money, in the people that you think are in higher places than you, because they can be prevented from helping you. But Hashem can carry out anything that he wants. Nothing can stop him from executing his decree. Number four, he knows what is best for our benefit. 
He doesn't lack any information. Again, when we talk about what's best for our benefit, we've spoken about the idea that trusting in Hashem doesn't mean that everything will turn out the way I want it to. In other words, what I think is best for me. Just like a parent who has to discipline and train a child and the child might say, what are you doing? You don't know what's best for me. I don't like what you're doing. And it doesn't feel good. The parent says, listen, one day you're going to grow up and understand, right? That I set these boundaries and I behaved this way because this is what was for your benefit long term. So when we talk about long term benefit in terms of Hashem, we're talking about this world. We're talking about the next world. We're talking about the real long-term benefit. We're talking about the journey of our souls, which came down into this world to fix, to, to fix something, to uh, complete a mission here. And so the Baldi Tachon, the person of Bitachon understands that trusting in Hashem when things go the way I want and when it feels good, that's great. I praise you, Hashem. But the other part of the coin is, even when it doesn't feel good, Hashem, I've had enough, you have enough of a good track record with the good stuff in my life that you give me. With the fact that you wake me up every morning and give me a brain that thinks and a mouth that works and eyes that see, right? And all the other blessings that no matter how many you're missing, there's still <laughs> millions of them, okay? If you, if you want to pay attention, and so therefore, God, even when you do things to me that don't feel good, I believe it's for my benefit. Number five, he's the one in charge of us, which means that even before we are born, and that's why we always have to look at it as the journey of the soul. I think when I was on one of Lori Palatnik's missions, one of the speakers said something that really resonated she said, we usually think of ourselves as, I am a body, I have a soul. But really the proper way to go through life is to say, I am a soul, I have a body. Right? I am a soul. I'm, I am first and foremost in the Shema. I mean, that's the part of me that was here before this world and will continue after this world. I'm in chapter two right now, covered with this body. But... You know, my body is my tool, it's a vehicle, but it's not me. And of course, the difficulty of living in a physical material world is that the message of this world life is you are a body and that is all you are. And so busy yourself with that body and become obsessed with everything that body wants and needs to the detriment of the soul, right? to the point where the soul feels like it has no voice, that it feels trapped inside the body as opposed to being the master and telling the body, excuse me, we are a soul, we have a body, right? I am a soul, I happen to have a body to transport me. It's my wheels, right? I got, my, I got the keys to the car, you know? <laughs> that, that's all it is. Okay, so... He is the one in charge of us. That means even before we are born, he has already done countless acts of great kindness to us. And he's with us throughout our entire life, continuing to do such acts. Number six, he's the master of all of our deeds, past and present. He has total control. Only he and no one else can help or harm us. I'm not exactly sure what that means because he's the master of all our deeds makes it sound like we don't have any free will, right? That he makes us do what we do. So I'm not sure whether it's just the way it's written or it just might be a deeper concept that even though we believe we have free will and we do have free will to a certain point, there is an idea that our free will is much more limited than we think it is. In other words, God has planned many, many things in our life to get us to a certain place, to bring us to a place where we can fulfill our mission. So yes, we do exercise free will, 
But I once spoke about this with one of my sons and he said, but our free will is a lot more limited than we think it is. But again, that's a topic beyond me right now. Okay, the last one is his kindness over all things is unlimited. So just shortly, uh, one of the questions that Rabbi Victor Miller asks is he says, if you have one of these conditions, why do you need all the others? For example, if you have the seventh condition that his kindness is unlimited, why do you need the first that he loves us? And he answers that a person can love you. The difference between God and a person is that a person might love you, but his patience can come to an end. There's a limit to how much he wants to do for you. You know, if you are needy and needy and needy, he might say, I can't do anything else for you. It's enough. I'm, I don't have any more patience. Or perhaps there's a person whose kindness is unlimited, but he's not interested in doing in using his kindness for you. And that's why the Chos Alavavos explains we need all seven of these conditions in order to understand that this is why we have to put our trust in Hashem and in Hashem only. Okay, let's get back to our idea of human experience. So Dina Schoonmaker explains, and I don't know who this is from, but it's a psychological principle, that there are four quadrants of human experience. Meaning, there are four ways in which human beings experience happiness and sadness. The question is, what makes us happy and what makes us sad? So number one is, when good things happen to me, I am happy. Okay, as long as we're normal, that's the way it works, right? When good things happen to me, I am happy. When bad things happen to me, I am sad. Number three, when bad things happen to other people, I'm sad if I'm, you know, don't have too much schadenfreude in me. And the other thing is, but the fourth one is, is when happy things happen to other people, I'm also sad. Okay. Right? So that's the schadenfreude that, you know, if something happens to another person that we were really hoping would happen to us, right? We wanted to hear, like somebody said to me the other day, I don't want to hear about another girl getting engaged. You know, I'm at home with my daughter who's getting older. And I'll tell you the truth, it's painful. I don't want to hear about somebody having a baby. I've been trying for seven years to have a baby. I, it doesn't make me happy. Okay, and it doesn't have to be that blatant for us to feel, again, this twinge of sadness. So basically, based on these quadrants of human experience, what they deduce from this is we're only happy 25% of the time. Okay, which means it's only when good things happen and that makes me happy. Again, the other ones are when bad things happen, it makes me sad. When bad things happen to other people, it makes me sad. And when happy things happen to other people, often I'm also sad. So what are the triggers that make me unhappy? What does it say about me when I can't be happy for other people's happiness? So back to this idea I think we mentioned last week is it says that we believe God is limited. It all goes back to our emuna, right? God is limited. If he's giving that person, then, you know, he's emptying out all his pockets and there's nothing left for me. If that girl just got married to that great guy, well, that means there's one less great guy in the pool of guys and I'm not going to get a great guy because he was taken, right? So... It comes from this idea of, you know, so what we have to believe and what Bitachon tells us to believe and Amuna is that God is infinite. God is unlimited. That we are all one, this idea of positive interdependence. And I can be happy for another person's success because it's good for me too, right? We're all sitting on the same boat, you know, in the in the negative way, right? If somebody drills a hole under their seat, you know, and says, uh, you know, I'm not doing anything. I'm not hurting anybody. It's under my seat, right? I didn't drill it under your seat. Well, we all know we're all going down, right? So the opposite is true too. We say that when somebody has some kind of joy and success, if we really believe in Hashem being unlimited, 
and that we're all connected to each other like one body and like one soul, then your success and your good fortune is mine too. And you have not taken anything away from me. Okay. So why do we want to do this? Why do we want to work on this? Because this avoda, this work in bitachon allows us to have better relationships. And it allows us not to feel threatened by other people. You know, when the pandemic first began, everybody was talking about, you know, the interdependence of mankind and the commonality that everybody felt with each other. And the whole idea that, you know, you don't just wear a mask for yourself, you're wearing a mask for other people. And there was this whole, you know, sort of almost like global lesson about looking outward, recognizing we're all in this together, but at the same time that that was going on, you know, that there were people who were grabbing toilet paper, right, and worrying about themselves and think, you know, thinking who cares the, the heck with everybody else. I got to take care of myself, right? So we see that, you know, human beings are complicated. You can have this wonderful feeling of interdependence, but the other side is that you're going to say, well, I got to put myself first. Because, you know, nice guys finish last, right? And uh, I got to look out for number one and all the other stuff that the negative interdependence teaches us. Okay, Rabbi Matisyao Solomon, who uh, is a very big rabbi in Lakewood, New Jersey, he should be gesund and well. He spoke about the concept of jealousy. And he said that the idea of jealousy is that people are taking things away from me, Right. We're jealous because we feel that is not fair, that's not right, that should be mine. And he says it starts out very, very um, gently. He says, imagine, you know, your neighbor across the street drives up in a brand new car, gorgeous new car. And you, you know, your first instinct is you take a look at the car and you say, wow, what a beautiful car. And then he says, the next place you go is, gee, I wish I had a car like that, right? And it can be so subtle, but when we tune into ourselves, right, we, we can hear this voice. And then the next voice he says is, you know what? I deserve to have a car like that. And then he says it goes down to, hey, you're a robber. You stole my car. So... He's, this is the idea that when somebody has something that I want, it's natural to think you somehow took it away from me. So the mantra that we have to practice in order to have bitachon is number one, that other people do not affect, other people's good fortune do not, does not affect mine. If Hashem wants me to have it, I will. No one's threatening me. Not in my job, not in my looks, not in my money, not in who my kids are going to marry. So the question again, going back to each one of us specifically, is which area do I worry about in life? You know, what areas have me wake up at night in a sweat or during the day feel this worry and those are the areas that we have to put more bitachon into, more of God into. We have to remember Hashem while I am, you know, going through my day in the material details of my life. If it's something that I feel I'm supposed to have that I don't have. And it doesn't mean that you can't try to get something. It doesn't mean that you just say, okay, this is the way it is, you know. God wants me to live in a hovel. And he doesn't want me to have, you know, uh, nice clothing for my children or anything good. That's the way it is. I totally accept this. You can still strive and make your efforts. But again, it has to be walking with Hashem and recognizing that if you're getting anxious and worried and upset while you're making the efforts, then you're not walking with Hashem because... You're saying it's all up to me. 
God, you're limited. Thanks. You know, I don't need your help. I found the spot myself. I found the parking spot myself. Right? It's about letting go of control, right? Hi. So it's back to this idea that was said, Rabot Machshavot. Sorry, let me see if I can mute. Okay, Does that is that okay? Can you guys hear me still? Okay. So it goes back to that Pasuk, Rabot Machshavot Belev Ish, that there are many thoughts in the, in the hearts of a human being. We have a lot of plans. We have a lot of ideas about the way we think things are supposed to go. But it's Hashem's plans. It's Hashem's ideas of what's good for us and what we need in life that's going, that are going to prevail, that are going to stand. So when we bring him with us into our plans and into our efforts, then hopefully, you know, we'll both be together with the same idea of what, what should be right? We'll collude with each other because Hashem will be part of those plans, not that we're working, you know, on our own. Okay, so what Bitachon does is, is it puts us in a hermetically sealed place. Think of yourself in a bubble, you know, we're bubbling during this pandemic with a few people, right? That's our bubble. It's supposed to be impenetrable right? Everybody else is out there, and I'm inside my bubble. So bitachon, a metaphor for bitachon is that I'm inside this hermetically sealed place, and no one can affect my chalik. I am going to get exactly what I'm supposed to get. So the Chazonish said very famously in his book, Amunav Bitachon, he said, you know, people think they have bitachon, and we've talked about this, that people chirp about it all day long. Yes, Ezra Hashem, Hashem Yazor, Hashem this, Hashem that, or Hashem, right? And he says, people think they have a lot of bitachon, but they don't really know where they're really holding until they're challenged. And he gives an example. He says, they think they have bitachon because no one ever opened up a business next to them of the same kind right? You're a travel agent, and you're doing really well. But then all of a sudden, right across the street, Sally, somebody opens up this beautiful travel agency, right, with a gorgeous sign, and everything's brand new. And how are you going to feel about that, right? So he gives an example. He says, Ruvain has a shoe store, and Shimon opens up a shoe store across the street. Now, the truth is, is halachically, there are parameters to whether or not a person is allowed to open up a business next door to you, right? Um, so, you know, halachically, if the community is very, very small, and it cannot support two businesses of the same kind, one shoe store is enough on Main Street, right? Because Main Street only has five stores on it. You're coming from Yechupitzville then halakhically, it could be that you're not allowed to open up a store. But uh, if, it, if it is permissible, if it's a, a big city like Toronto, and it's actually permissible to open up a pizza place right across the street, halakhically, and people who are opening it are Yireh Shemayim, they, they have a, a sense of, you know, what does God want in this situation? And basically, the halacha says, yes, you can open up. The community can support two shoe stores, both on Main Street. So what happens? The first guy, let's call him Ruvain, who had the shoe store that was already there, he's suddenly whispering to his friends and family. And he's saying, what are we going to do about this guy who's opening up this store? And of course, this can happen in any area, in the area of Shaduchim, right? Uh, why are they getting all of the good boys and, uh, you know, they seem to be hopping, you know, the best shadchan, you know, Rochi Wineless in town. And, and I, I can't even get into her. She's so busy. Right. And, you know, like, it's just not right. It's not fair. It's, it, 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 you know, or another shadchan's opening up and Rochi's getting nervous because everybody's going over there because it seems that with 
back, Shadchan, everybody's getting married, right? So whatever it is, whenever we feel threatened, someone's invading our territory. So that's when we find out where we're really holding in bitachon in a practical way. Now, bitachon is a continuum. It's not all or nothing. It's like rungs of a ladder. So the Chazon Ish outlines the different levels of bitachon. So he says, imagine somebody is opening up a business exactly the same as yours, and you're feeling, you know, you're sweating. So he says the first level is outright sabotage. This is like the lowest level of bitachon, right? You're saying, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. You know, somebody's competing with me. I'm going to go around and tell everybody why they should not shop at that store. And definitely not do any kind of business with this person. Okay? And I'm going to feel very self-righteous about this. Okay. So, uh, Dina Schoonmaker explains that sometimes we all do this. We do this with a snide comment. We do this when we speak Lush and Hara about somebody who somehow threatens us. Right? And this comes from the urge to sabotage another person's chance. You know, let's say you're writing for a magazine and you're one of the main writers and somebody else wants to get into the magazine and you know that they're very, very talented and perhaps they're going to be in competition with your readers or, you know, whether the magazine was going to give you another spot in their magazine to write another article. So you might say something, make a snide comment, a little lush and hara, if it will help you maybe with the boss, then recognize that this person is not quite as good as you are, right? They shouldn't move too quickly on this, okay? The next level, okay, the next level is it's not sabotage, but you're very, very worried. You're biting your nails, okay? You're tossing and turning at night. You've got stomach aches. You can't eat. You're losing sleep, okay? Because this person is threatening me. They're threatening my chances of whatever it is that's important to me. Third level, I'm not worrying at all, but I'm not helping the other person. I don't like them, okay? I'm not sabotaging, I'm not worried, but I'm not going to do anything for their benefit. Now, this is not considered a bad level. This is considered human, okay? They can open up. It's fine. I have some bitachon. There'll be enough business for both of us, but I'm not doing anything to help them. You know, I'm not going to give them any advice. I'm not going to tell them, you know, if you open up there, there's not much parking there. Like, you know, you might want to think about it before you pick that storefront. I'm not going to help them at all. Now, the fourth level is really the highest level of bitachon. And that would be somebody that actually assists the person who's opening up next to them. Okay, and Dina Schoonmaker gives a true life story that somebody told her about her own husband who was a dentist in Israel. They'd come on Aliyah. They'd opened up a, a dentist practice in an American area in Jerusalem, let's say Rehavia or somewhere like that. And he had a specific type of dentistry that he did and he was doing really well. And he got a call from a professional So he got a call from somebody who was thinking of making Aliyah and, you know, we're on the verge of making Aliyah, who was the exact same type of dentist as he was. And anyway, his wife told Dina that, you know, she was really worried and, and she was really upset and she felt like her husband was, you know, his practice was, was going to be compromised because of this, this American who's going to move in and open up in the same neighborhood and get the same clientele. Meanwhile, she said one day she walked into her husband's office and he was sitting with this man and 
she didn't know who he was immediately, but afterwards she asked her husband, who was that? And she, he said, well, that was, you know, Mr. Schwartz, who just moved here from Teaneck, New Jersey. And I was telling him about where he should advertise, you know, where the best place to open up would be because that would be where parking would be easiest. And I was explaining to him, you know, how pra the practice works in Israel and all the ins and outs of, of opening up a business in, in Israel. And his wife uh, was amazed by her husband. <laughs> she said, wow, like I've been, you know, tossing and turning, worrying about this guy and you have him in the office and you're giving him all these tips. So this was an example of somebody who had a very high level of bitachem, who said, listen, halachically, he's allowed to open up a practice next to me. And I believe that God is unlimited and that whatever I'm supposed to get is not going to be taken away from now because he's next door to me. And if that is the halacha that he's allowed to open up next to me, then then there's no reason for me to be nervous. I'm going to help him. I'm going to be gracious and open enough to help him, right? So we have a lot of examples of this. Another example is, let's say, a fundraiser who speaks to another fundraiser, and the other fundraiser shares tips with him. Oh, you know what I do when, I, when I'm in New York? This guy's a great contact. Get in touch with him. He'll connect you to all kinds of people. There's enough money to go around for both of our organizations. God is unlimited, right? I'm not afraid to give you my tip. But why would you do that? And a person who has bitachon, the question is, why not? What do you stand to lose from that? Now, a very high level would, let's, let's say, be somebody who, where there's only one job available, and you give it away to someone else. You know, you know that there's somebody else better than the job for you. And you say, you know what? I think Sarah Cohen would be better at this than I am, to tell you the truth. <clears throat> I was thinking of a friend I had who, Baruch Hashem, she finally got married by 40 and thank God had a child. But she was famous. She was a wonderful person and extremely bright and extremely kind. And she made so many shaduchim during her dating career because she'd go out with different guys and say, oh my gosh, you would be perfect for Carolyn. Oh boy, you'd be perfect for, you know, Susie. And she made like, I don't know how many shaduchim during the course of her dating. And again, to, to say that guy's not for me, but to be broad and open enough to say, here, you take him, right? He's for you. Takes a certain largesse of personality. You know, even if it's, you know, it's not the same as saying, here, take the guy that I wanted to marry. Obviously, that's a whole nother level. But but just the fact that, go ahead, this guy's better for you. He's not good for me. He's good for you. <clears throat> so there is this idea. This is a very high level. And a person is not required to do that, by the way. Because we have a principle in the Gemara called Chayecha Kodbi, which is the scenario that if two people are in the desert and one of you will die, there's only enough water for one of you to drink it and survive that flask of water, okay? The halacha is that you drink it. You drink it. You do not give it away to your friend. You're not supposed to be Mr. Nice Guy. Hayecha kodmim, your life comes before his, okay? <clears throat> There's a concept that I save myself first. And I know it goes against all of our sensibilities of that's not nice that's selfish you know what if they wrote you up in the paper and you both survived and they said ha you know i'll tell you about this schmo i was in the desert with him and he drank all the water and left me to die <laughs> i mean it doesn't go it goes against our nice sensibilities right but you know so does when you have new people at your shabbos table who've never experienced shabbos and you have to explain to them you know, when I pass you the wine, when I pass you the challah, don't pass it on. Drink it yourself first, right? 
it goes against Canadian sensibilities. What do you mean, drink it first? I want to pass it. I want to get, you know, it's not nice. Some of the things of the Torah go against our natural sensibilities. So this is one of them. Because the idea here is I don't have to give up for somebody else. I don't have to. This is considered a high lifni mishur sadin, above the call of duty level, okay? I don't have to do what Rachel did for Leah. The reason we talk about the story of how, you know, <clears throat> Rachel gave up her husband so that her older sister would not have to marry Asav or, you know, wouldn't be embarrassed or because she recognized this was the right thing to do, the Sadekis thing to do, the righteous thing to do. That's not our model for what we're supposed to do. We're not required to do that. <clears throat> the level to which we share info and tips, we usually do it as long as it doesn't threaten me. But the Torah view is that when you are threatened, you don't have to. You don't have to go and, and invite this dentist into your office and tell him all the ins and outs of how to have a successful business. You don't have to do that. But it is seen as a very righteous and high level. Okay? So sometimes people actually sabotage other people, and halachically, you're actually allowed to if it's a case where they really should not be opening up next to you or doing what they're doing. So sometimes we're allowed and sometimes we're not. But back to this idea of self-righteousness, we have to be careful, you know, that we're doing things according to halacha in these areas and not out of our own feelings or out of our own spite. Because even in spiritual matters, people can become misled and think they're being very righteous when it's really a matter of competition. Okay, and you know, we know the story of Korach and Moshe, how Korach gathered a whole bunch of people against Moshe and whipped them up into this self-righteous frenzy. You know, Moshe, who do you think you are? You know, you, you know, we're all holy. We all deserve to be leaders. Who do you think you are calling the shots? Right? And he whipped everybody up in a frenzy. And, and the Torah teaches us Korach was a Talmud Chacham. He was brilliant. He knew the Torah backwards and forwards. But he was misled by his own schmeck of, you know, arrogance, of ego. And we can also be misled. If the great people in the Torah can be misled, it's a model for us that we can be misled. And these kind of people attract people who aren't intelligent people who like fights, people who are dissatisfied with their own lives, people who love to speak Lashon Hara. And the Satan, we're told, makes peace between all of these types of people so that they make a community supporting someone who they feel is not right. So it can happen in the physical material realm and it can happen in the spiritual realm. I don't have time to tell you a personal story, but we saw this in our career as rabbi where People who were supposedly on the same page in one of the communities we were on, trying to teach and raise the level of the community in a place where there was not a lot of Torah, were in competition with each other. It was like, excuse me, you guys are all working for the same cause. And these can be great people and Torah scholars. I'll end with a story that always amazed me. There was a, two famous rabbis. I think maybe in the 17th or maybe 18th century, or actually maybe even more recently. But, but you know, in the last hundred years, their names were Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonas and Ibishitz. And the story was famous that their Talmidim hated each other. Why did they hate each other? Because Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonas and Ibishitz had a dispute over some matter of Torah some halachic matter, okay? Their dispute was what we call l'shem shamayim, for the sake of heaven, in the same way that Hillel and Shammai, throughout the Talmud, take, took different views. And many rabbis, right, had different views and opinions on a halachic or a hashkafic issue. And they were, Rav Yaakov Emzin and Rav Yonas and Ibishitz had this dispute 
l'shem shemayim, for the sake of heaven. However, their talmidim, their students, recognized this split, so to speak, and they disliked one another and fought with one another because of this machloket, this dispute. So what happened, the story goes, is that when Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonas and Ibishitz, uh died, they went up to heaven, and a bus call, a voice from heaven, so to speak, came down and was heard by both of their Talmidim. And the voice said, you know, we, I just want you to know that up in heaven, your rabbis, your rabbis, are sitting together, Bechavrusa, learning Torah together because their dispute was purely not personal. It was purely for the sake of heaven. But as for you, their Talmidim, you're all going to you know where. You're going in the opposite direction. <laughs> because your dispute was based on your own pettiness, your own small-mindedness, and it was feeding a certain aspect of your own lack of wanting to be better than you know, your opponents. So something up here can be very, very high, but when it trickles down to the common folk, so to speak, it can be completely um, uh, dirtied and sullied by human frailty and human failings. So we have to be careful when we jump on the bandwagon of a dispute or a cause and we feel very self-righteous about it. We have to be very careful that it's not just feeding some very base desire of ours that we clothe and mask in this, you know, holy and religious garb. And nobody's above it. You know, on a very light side, right, there are people who don't give you the entire recipe uh, all the ingredients. We always hear about that person, right? I don't want your cake to come out as good as mine, right? I'm not going to give you all, I'm going to leave out the baking powder, right? Or I'm going to, you know, I mean, hopefully none of us have these people in our lives, but, you know, this is the idea. So, you know, I'm going to finish. I just want to finish this last idea. And that is that, so how do we acquire True bitachon before we're challenged with somebody opening up a business next to us. How do we recognize that we have this darker side to us and work on it without necessarily having to be challenged in that way? So we have to practice it now before something comes up. We have to look at the areas where we feel challenged, where we feel this is mine, right? Someone who won't tell you where they bought their dress, right? Because they don't want you to have that same dress, right? I don't want anybody else to wear what I wear. My favorite story is back in St. Catharines, I had a, a non-Jewish friend who once told me that uh, her mother went to a funeral and it was open casket. We don't do that in Judaism, but open casket funeral. And she said, her mother went to the funeral and, and, and she walked by the open casket and she, she was horrified because the woman in the, in the coffin was wearing the exact same dress that she was wearing. <laughs> I mean, you can't get any worse than that, right? But, but anyway, you know, I don't want, I'm not going to tell my diet because it's working for me. I don't want it to work for you. I'm not going to tell you where, you know, what makeup I wear because I don't want you to have it. I'm not going to tell you where I go and get my nails done because that's my place. I don't want anybody to know about it, right? I don't want any, I don't want all the Jews to come all of a sudden, right? And the prices are going to go up. So I'm not telling you about where I go. So the question is, what is my area of challenge? What is that place where I, you know, have a secret? I don't want you to challenge me in that area. Where is that place that I'm going to say, you know, um, I don't want you to know. Let's keep it a secret. I don't want to tell you where my, who I got my cleaning lady from. I don't want to tell you who my cleaning lady is because I don't want you to hop my cleaning lady. So the opposite is, is that when we share our good fortune, when we share the good that we have in our life, 
it shows that we have bitachon. When we tell somebody about a job, when we give somebody a chance at something that maybe even we're trying for or we want, an area where, we, where it's important to us, and we recognize that they're not affecting our success, and we test our own muscle to see whether or not we're worried about other people's success, and we get to a level where we want to help them, this is how we know that we're growing in bitachon. Because there's a negative correlation that the less bitachon you have, the less chesed you're going to want to do for another person. The less you're going to want to give away to them what you feel is your special thing. I don't want to help you or tell you my secrets because it will affect my having what I need. But the positive is, the more bitachon, the more giving, the more naturally helpful, the less protective I'll be of my own stuff, the more loving and caring. And this is a natural outgrowth of having more bitachon. Okay. We'll continue with this idea next week. I've already gone over. I'm so sorry. And um, anybody have any questions? Second. Devora. Devora? Yes. Hold on. I'm just Hi. Just I want to wish you a happy birthday. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Was it your birthday yesterday? 